So I, I want to continue, actually, continue a little bit more on the theme that Gil started yesterday, looking into the nature of this self, this self, as he called it, this self-construction, because I think that it's always helpful to continue that exploration because it's not necessarily an easy one to understand. So I want to begin with this quote by uh, Wei Wu Wei, who says, Why are you so unhappy? Because 99.9% of your thoughts are about you, and there, is, and there isn't one. <laughs> There's probably something we intuit in that <laughs> because there's a way we just don't get the satisfaction from our thoughts that we'd like, you know. They just keep going on and on and on, and yet there's something we can't really grasp in that sense of who we actually are. So I wonder if when I read that, people laugh because I just think it, it touches something, but we may not quite know what it is that it touches in us. So Gil was talking about this construction, and um, I was reflecting on um, when I was growing up, I was not one of the fortunate ones who started the Dharma practice, the meditation practice early in my teens, like some people here have and some people I know. It was later in my 20s. So in my teens, my teens and my 20s, as, as most people are doing during that time, is trying to find some sense of identity, uh, trying to get a sense of, well, who am I? And um, I had a brother who, who was three years older than me, and so I always looked up to him and you know, wanted his guidance to help me figure out who I was as I was growing up. And so we went to the same college. She was three years ahead of me. And when I was a freshman in college, he was a senior. And, you know, I was really proud to have my brother be a senior in college. And so I asked my brother, I said, well, you know, how do, what's, the, what's the best way to be here at college? You know, how do I actually find my place and um, make, make my way here? He said, well, you've got to get an identity. You know, be somebody, you know? So I thought, okay, well, I'll be somebody. And so I became an artist, and I dressed with my black turtleneck T-shirts and my, my jeans, and I carried my black big portfolio under my arm and, you know, had long blonde hair, and, you know, I was an artist. And I remember kind of projecting that whole identity, like, okay, now I know who I am. And I, you know, I had some talent. It wasn't like I just kind of thought, okay, an artist. But, um, <laughs> you know, just picking it out of the blue. <laughs> so I tried to be an artist until I actually found out that you needed a lot more talent to make it in the, in the world. And it just, it just, you know, I just found out that I wasn't quite as good as I needed to be to really continue that as a profession. 
But it, it, it was this, as, that, as I started finding out that I wasn't that good of an artist, it kind of made me wonder about my identity. Because how could I actually keep holding up this identity of an artist if I wasn't actually going to pursue it and be able to carry that through? So I remember it was very, very confusing um, to, to figure out, well, what was, who, who was I going to be and how was I going to be? And, you know, this whole question that we have when we're not really looking at uh, this, the, the deeper question or the deeper issues about the nature of this existence. We really do think that there's some way we need to project that sense of ourself into the world. So when we come to Buddhist practice, we're actually asked to let go of that identity, to start to look more deeply into how we construct that, how we build ourselves up. And so, so I started the Buddhist practice in my late 20s, and so it, was, you know, it took some time, just the very confusing, kind of very uh, uncertain about this thing called an identity. And what I understand is that this, this sense of identity actually gives us some place to stand. It gives us a kind of ground or, or an anchor uh, for where, where we're located in the world or, or how to move in the world. Because when we have some sense of that, that, that who, who am I, we, we can navigate this world a little bit easier. It gives us something familiar. I know who I am, and gives us a kind of a center from which to function. And it's something that seems stable and solid and, you know, okay, I'm moving forth like this. And yet, you know, it's really the job of the uh, ego, the ego self, to try to locate itself. This is really what, what the ego mind tries to do is find some kind of location in this world of objects, this world of conditions and configurations. It's like, I'm here, you're there, and where, you know, how does all this work? We want to find ourselves somewhere. And we keep solidifying these objects. We keep solidifying our perceptions in order to give us some sense of how to navigate, how to understand all this. And yet this solidifying of our perceptions keeps our minds very busy because it's trying to figure everything out. It's trying to figure out who, every, who you are, what this is, what that is, who am I, I should be this, you should be that, you know, this, this, this way that we're continually engaged in this activity of locating ourselves and objectifying our reality. So this ego mind, one of the things it's very busy with is attaching on to things so that we feel comfortable, we feel secure, we feel like we know how things are, things are familiar, I, I know who I am, I know who you are. And we don't really want that from the ego perspective, we don't really want that shaken up. We don't really want that to, to shift very much. And again, that's the, the job of this ego mind. We might say that all mental activity is engaged 
in attempting to solidify reality. And Gil was talking about this, that this, this way that we, we, we label and we, we name, we want to know what everything is, and then we have judgments about what we like and what we don't like and our preferences, and we react when we don't get what we want, and we um, reject, and, and we're just so busy in this kind of way that we're trying to create our reality so it has some kind of stability to it. And not that there's anything wrong with this. This is, this is what we do. However, we want to understand this so that maybe we aren't so caught by this activity. We're not so, maybe a better word might be, we're not so imprisoned by this activity because this activity of solidifying and objectifying is actually creating these constructions that then we feel trapped in and we feel limited by. If I think I know who I am, as I did when I was in my 20s, I am an artist and I need to look like this and dress like this and act like this and say this and be this, I'm, I'm kind of imprisoned in that idea. And so it's not that there is, is not anything wrong with having some way that we are in the world. We just don't want to be confined by it. We don't want to be limited by it. You know, for example, we, we, we solidify this body. You know, this body is solid and it's like this. And when the body starts to change, when we start to age or get sick or something starts to happen, we have a reaction to it. It's not supposed to be, it's not supposed to change. I like my body when it's healthy. I like my body when I look youthful or whatever idea we have about that. So we're, we're resisting, again, that resistance to the change. And our mind, our mind is constantly changing and yet we get attached to certain views and opinions and ideas and then we think they're real. We attach on, we solidify, we objectify our views, our, our positions, and this is the way it is. And when we do that, it gives us a place to stand. We say, yeah, this is who I am, this is, this is, this is how things are. I was, uh, during the election, during the, the recent election, and I'm sure most people here got very, very engaged in all of that, um, people had positions, right? There were Democrats, <laughs> there were Republicans, and it was very, very intense, you know. The, the, whole, the whole election this year was, was quite a, a, a ride. And I was, I was in Canada for an early, right around, uh, not during the, at the election, but just before, when a lot of the speeches and everything were going on. And I remember joking with a friend um, just like, I'm a Democrat, you know, and, and I'm right. You know, my views are right, the way I feel is right, and those people who think otherwise, boy, you know, and then I'm not even going to say, you know, the kinds of thoughts and judgments and ideas that I had and that were going through my mind, but I could see, I could feel, and I was joking with my friend, you know, just how, how convinced we can get about our ideas about whether they're right, whether they're not right, and then of course you can see what, what happens when we do that. 
This is from uh, Sogyal Rinpoche, who's a Tibetan master. He says, wrong views and wrong convictions can be the most devastating of all our delusions. Surely Adolf Hitler and Pol Pot must have been convinced that they were right too. That's quite something to reflect on. And yet each and every one of us has the same dangerous tendency as they had to form convictions, believe them without question, and act on them. So bringing down suffering not only on ourselves, but on all those around us. On the other hand, the heart of the Buddha's teaching is to see the actual state of things as they are. And this is called the true view. It is a view that is all-embracing, as the role of spiritual teachings is precisely to give us a complete perspective on the nature of mind and reality. So again, it's not wrong or bad to have views and opinions. It's the way we hold on to them, the way we get caught in them, and then what happens in the world when we do that. On a retreat not long ago, there was a yogi who was talking about one of his experiences. I think he was talking in the hall during questions and answers. And we were looking at this way we get fixated and attached to our views and opinions. And he, he talked about this new puppy that he had. And he was saying that um, before he got the puppy, he was really, really wanting a dog, a little dog. And he was so excited because he lived alone and this dog was really going to be great to have as a, a friend and a companion. And so he got the little puppy and he was really happy. And then the puppy <laughs> started getting into things and peeing in places it wasn't supposed to and, and chewing things. And it was, well, wait a minute. The puppy's not supposed to do that. You know, the puppy was supposed to, I, supposed to make me happy. You know, and now I'm getting really miserable and, and judgmental, and I'm really angry at that puppy. That's, that wasn't supposed to happen. He said, it's a bad puppy. <laughs> <laughs> it was supposed to be a good puppy. <laughs> and I like that story, because I think it's really a good example in a, in a benign way, how we actually can get fixated on a view. I'm going to get this puppy, I'm going to be happy, and everything's going to be great, and then what happens? The reality hits, and it's not like that at all. Just this just a simple example, but I think that it's one that we can probably relate to. So the tendency of the mind, this thinking mind, to try to solidify and objectify. But yet, when we come to our meditation, wonderful thing about the vipassana, the insight meditation, is that we actually start to see the things aren't so solid. The positions, the views, the ideas, the experiences of my mind and body are changing all the time. 
In fact, when we look closely, our experience is fairly fluid. There's a kind of flow to it, this constant change of thoughts and images and ideas and sensations and emotions and sounds and tastes and smells and this, this constant shift of conditions. And so when we see this, when we bring our attention to it, it kind of shakes up this way that we have our world so well constructed. This is who I am, this is who you are, this is the way things are. It it kind of starts to bring some doubt or some question to these fixations of our view. When we see that, when we see the mind starting to change all the time, these thoughts and, and ideas running through, we see that there really isn't any support for the mind to stay in any kind of stable fashion. I mean, there isn't anything there to hold it together. What, what's, what's actually going to hold these conditions in a fixed way? Just this, this fluid kind of dynamic, shifting, changing. You know, when, we, when we start to get quiet and we start to feel and sense into the nature of reality as it is, what can we actually hold on to? Is there anything at all that we can find that's permanent, that isn't changing? Probably, the th- probably what gives us the most sense of something solid is the earth. earth the earth feels very stable. It's not moving. <laughs> it's not changing. In fact, you know, we have the earth, our bodies feel solid to a certain extent, and, and, and the Buddha speaks about this as the earth element. You know, the, what gives us a sense of solidity is the earth element. And so we have the earth under our feet, too, and it feels very stable. And one year, I wasn't at this retreat, but it was down in Yucca Valley in uh, Southern California. I don't know if there was anybody here who was on that retreat you were. <laughs> John was, there was a pretty significant earthquake during the retreat with about a hundred and some yogis. And, and I heard the stories about it. But you can imagine when you think that, it, well, at least the earth is stable. You know, you're, you're meditating and you can see how everything's shifting and changing and there's nothing you can really hold on to, but there's the earth. And then the earth starts to shake. <laughs> And apparently it was a pretty strong earthquake. In fact, uh, one, one, <laughs> of the, one of my colleagues, Carol Wilson, who was, there, who was there, she was actually saying you could see, it was in the desert, and you could see the desert kind of going like that. You know, the way, like, like the, the desert turning into like an ocean, where you could, you could see the, the movement of the, of the earth like that. And of course all the buildings, and um, they're heavy cement buildings, and... You know, it was, my senses was very, very scary. I'm so glad I wasn't there. <laughs> Not that I'm glad you were there. <laughs> but, you know, so, so again, it, it, ch- it challenges that view of what's solid and what's stable. And the interesting thing is that I think that we actually intuitively know this. 
as much as we we want to continue to try to fix things and solidify things, there is a kind of anxiety. There's a kind of inner agitation that is constantly trying to make things stable in our lives, like our bodies or our minds or our relationships, our, our jobs or work, our houses or whatever it is. And yet there's this underlying anxiety. And I wonder if there is some kind of existential knowing of the truth of reality that, that drives us to try to hold on to that which is always changing. Even though we may not bring it fully up into our consciousness, there's some anxiety agitation that runs through that we stay so busy. We're so busy controlling, trying to hold on to things and people and places, our bodies, our health, or whatever that is. So difficult to allow the nature, the nature of things to reveal themselves, to express themselves as they are. But yet we can see directly when we have the interest to look, to turn our attention, to see if it's true. Is this actually true? I mean, the Buddha says, yes, all things are impermanent. All conditioned things arise and pass away. So we can look and we see, yeah, how many times has your mind changed today? How many times has your mood changed today? What happened to all those experiences? I mean, it's sad, isn't it? Many people here have had beautiful, some, sometimes very profound experiences. Where are they? <laughs> what happened to them? And we really do want to hold on to them. You know, I hear, it, I hear this, you know, and I, my heart really goes out. You know, we want those experiences back. We want to recreate those experiences. We want to remember those experiences. We want to take them home with us. But we can't. It's really like this image a lot. This image has been coming through my mind a lot of a, a sandcastle on the beach. You know, beautiful. Sometimes you, you walk on the beach, those of you who do live near beaches, some people don't. I have to remember, sometimes I teach in the central center of Canada. They're about 2,000 miles away from a beach. And, you know, I'll talk about a beach and they look at me like I'm kind of crazy, you know. But, you know, the sandcastles, those intricate sandcastles, and then the ocean wave comes and washes it away. And this image is with me a lot these days, you know, just this beautiful castle. And then the next moment, it's just flattened back into the sand, nothing, back into the original particles. The form disappeared, gone. It's kind of like that. Where are all those experiences? It's like gone back to the great ocean. 
can't, can't hold them, can't have them for our own. They're not personal on a certain level. They make an impact. They impact our consciousness. They impact our being. But in their form, in their shape, in their actual manifestation, we can't have them in the same way. And it's heartbreaking sometimes. It's so sad because they were so beautiful, so wonderful. And yet this is so important for us. This is the essence of the Buddha's teachings, these four noble truths. Because if we don't understand, if we don't understand deeply, we will keep chasing after these experiences that are changing, that are disappearing. They appear and then they dissolve. They appear and then they dissolve. And until we have a deep sense of what the Buddha was pointing to, we may not rest. We'll continue to swim, as Gil spoke last night, this swimming. It's over there, it's over there, it's over there. But it's, we can't find it. We get so tired, we get so exhausted. So these, I want to bring in the Four Noble Truths because this, these, these teachings hold, the, they hold the, all of the, the questions. They hold all of the profundity of this existence in these four truths. And, and when I reflect on and, or speak about or, or um, give attention to these four noble truths, what I realize, and it, it, they touch me so profoundly, they give shape to my entire understanding in these four noble truths. The first truth that there is suffering, there is dukkha in this life. And this needs to be fully understood. And there's a cause for this suffering, which is the attaching, the clinging, the holding. And this needs to be let go of. The third truth that there is an end to the cause of this suffering, of this dukkha. And this needs to be fully realized. This Nibbana, or this liberation. And the fourth noble truth, that of the Eightfold Noble Path, which is the path, the, the, um, that way, the Buddha pointing the way for us in these eight factors of the Eightfold Noble Path. So the whole of the, the teachings are, are in these four truths. It's all about that there is dukkha, there is pain, there is birth, aging, sickness, and death. There is this changing nature of reality. There is birth, things come into being, and then they die away, they disappear. There's a kind of suffering, and there's kind of a dukkha in that. But if we hold on, the Buddha says, if we hold on, this is the cause of our mental suffering. This is the cause of our deep suffering. And we can, the, we can release that holding. We can release that holding. And as we release, as we let go, we become free and free and freer free and freer. 
and then there's the whole teachings that point the way to this. So, so all of the teachings, a Joseph Goldstein, my, 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 I call him my uh, heart teacher, my heart teacher, he opened my heart, my primary teacher. Joseph Goldstein has one teaching, he only teaches one thing. He says nothing whatsoever is worth holding on to. Nothing whatsoever is worth clinging on to. He says all of the teachings come into that one statement. All the teachings of the Buddha. So we're really just looking at that. We're looking at that activity. We're looking at that uh, uh, patterning of how we hold on. And we, we think that we should just be able to let go, right? I mean, how many times do we just say, let go to ourselves? You know, just let go. And then we get frustrated and we get upset and, and we think we should just be able to let go. <laughs> and, and yet as we continue on the path, we really understand how difficult that is. The, the force of, the, of this conditioning is so strong. The forces of greed and the forces of aversion and hatred, the force, forces of confusion that, that keep us caught and bound and identified are so strong, it's very hard to let go. And so when we see this, perhaps this can bring some compassion, bring some compassion when we really feel and understand our predicament, our human predicament of the bondage that we find ourselves in, even as we find ourselves becoming more free and more open and more released and relaxed, then there's the next one, right? There's the next one we start, the next thing we're holding on to, oh, right, that too. The next aversion, the next hatred, the next anger, the, the next desire. It seems like it's a, a long journey. I remember this one cartoon I saw once of the Zen master sitting up front with the monks, and he says, pack your lunches. It's a long journey. We're going on a long journey, you know? So this, so this realization of this helps us to let go of our impatience, perhaps, <laughs> Maybe we can start to relax a little bit around the journey that we're on, be a little bit kinder to ourselves in the recognition of what it is that we're actually dealing with, which is some very powerful forces of mind. So these four noble truths looking at how we hold on and that we can let go when we understand the, the activity, the pattern of the holding. So when we look deeply at this sense of ourself and what it is actually made up of, we can start to see these changing thoughts and feelings and sensations and emotions and sounds and sights and 
all the different experiences that are running through moment to moment to moment. And in the meditation, sometimes we can actually feel the sense of our identity, the sense of how we know ourselves begin to break up. We don't feel so solid any, at, at certain times. We feel lighter, we feel open, we feel kind of more accessible to the fullness of nature and all that's around us to other people. Sometimes we'll feel less separate, we feel more connected. Yeah. That sense of the, the rigidity of this, the identity, the way we know ourselves starts to soften and break up and we feel that how that is. Sometimes it can be wonderful and we feel really elated and we feel the joy and, and, and the happiness that arises in that openness. Sometimes we can actually feel kind of scared. And this happens too in our meditation when we start to, the sense of our body, the boundaries aren't so fixed and solid anymore and all of a sudden we feel like there's kind of an expansiveness, a boundless kind of space and where does my body start and where does it end and and everything feels very open and then that fear comes up, it's like, oh, what's happening? And it can be kind of scary for us and that's okay, you know, it's not that that shouldn't be there, you know, we're starting to explore and, and enter into some new territory of how we know ourselves, of who we take ourselves to be. We might even say this sense of identity is expanding. This sense of self is expanding and it's kind of like, oh, I don't know, this this is unfamiliar. And that's not unusual. And we can try to pull ourselves back together again solidify again, objectify again. But that's the patterning, that's the force of our conditioning, is try to pull things back together again, to make sense of things, to know where, well, I'm here, you're there, everything's in place again. The trees are there, the buildings are here, you know. And that's fine. And then we feel stable again, we feel some solid ground, we feel the, f- the ground under our feet, and we start to relax, and then things start to open up again. <laughs> And then maybe we feel a little bit more stable in that openness and we can explore a little bit more. It's like going out a little further into the ocean. At first we take a couple of steps and we test out the water and we see if it feels like we want to go a little further. And then it's okay, so we take a few steps out further, but then no, no, I don't like it, it's a little too cold and getting too deep, and we come back in. That's okay it's probably better that you come back. (laughs) You're not ready to go too far out yet. So you come back and you recharge and feel a little bit more stable and more grounded and then maybe next time I'll go out a little further, I'll go a little deeper into the ocean. Fine. Swim around a little bit, feel feel your paddle around a little bit and then, then come back again. We seem to give us ourselves such a hard time, really, when we feel this fear, when, we, when we're not able to just open up, you know, like it's supposed to just happen in one snap of the finger. 
And, and the judge can come in and we get impatient. And, and yet the truth is we're not really ready. There's a, it's, a, it can, it's a gradual. We, take, we do it in... There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a kind of perfection in that opening. There's a way we, 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 we know our, our being, our, we know what we need. We know how to do it. And in a way, we need to trust that. Can we trust it? Can we trust that this is unfolding, our process, our journey is unfolding the way that it needs to? There does seem to be some kind of perfection in it from a wider perspective from a perspective that isn't small and limited and wanting to control and manipulate and know and understand and keep things familiar. But when we step out a little bit more and look at all of what's happening from a bigger perspective, there seems to be some kind of beautiful rhythm, kind of beautiful unfolding in things that may not make sense at all to the rational mind, to the small, conceptual rational, linear mind that wants everything to go according, you know, A, B, C, D, E. But when we let go of that and we soften, it's kind of something else is going on that we may not be able to understand at all. Something that's very mysterious. So we take our time, and yet we follow that impulse, that urge, that desire, we might say, that desire that leads us to freedom, that leads us to a deep inner contentment or satisfaction that we know is true and we know is possible. I wanted to share with you some other things. I, want to, I have some really good things I want to read to you, so I don't want to miss out on the opportunity to share those with you. So how do I get back to them? So this falling apart. The things are falling apart, coming together, falling apart, coming together. The sense that somehow we intuitively know this and then try to hold on, try to keep it all together. I want to read this from um, David Shields. He uh, wrote a book this year, and it's called The Thing About Life Is That One Day You'll Be Dead. (laughs) And there was a great title, huh? And I, I... read this little review of it in this magazine, and I pulled out some of the uh, pieces that I thought were really interesting, and I want to share these with you. If you could live forever in good health at a particular age, what age would you be? As people get older, their ideal age gets higher. For 18 to 24-year-olds, it's age 27. 
For 25 to 29-year-olds, it's 31. For 40 to 49-year-olds, it's 40. And, <laughs> and for people over 64, it's 59. Now, how many times have I heard my father when I see, people ask him, how old are you? 59. You know, somehow that's the age. Your strength and coordination peak at 19. Your body is the most flexible until age 20. After that, joint function steadily declines. <laughs> this is, this is, this is the, the good news for, for 2009. <laughs> Your IQ is highest between ages 18 and 25. Once your brain peaks in size at age 25, it starts shrinking, losing weight, and filling with fluid. <laughs> As you age, your responses to stimuli of all kinds become slower and more inaccurate, especially in more complex tasks. At 30, you reach peak bone mass. Your bones are as dense and strong as they'll ever be. In your late 30s, you start losing more bone than you make. By age 35, nearly everyone shows some signs of aging, such as graying hair, wrinkles, less strength, less speed, stiffening in the walls of the central arteries, degeneration of the heart's blood vessels, diminished blood supply to the brain, and elevated blood pressure. In late middle age, the skin in your hands becomes less sensitive to touch. Your skin cells regenerate less often. The skin weakens and dries. The number of sebaceous glands declines dramatically, and all of the tissues of the skin undergo some change. Um, Emerson said, you are being asked to do things, and yet you are not decrepit enough to turn them down. <laughs> And that's just middle age. Uh, you gain weight until age 55, at which point you begin to shed weight, specifically lean tissue, muscle mass, water, and bone. At 60, you've lost 25% of the volume of saliva you normally secrete for food. Emerson said, "'Tis strange that it's not in vogue to commit Harry Carey, <laughs> as the Japanese do at age 60." Nature is so insulting in her hints and notices, does not pull you by the sleeve, but pulls out your teeth, tears off your hair in patches, steals your eyesight, twists your face into an ugly mask, in short, uh, pu uh, pulls out everything upon you without in the least abating your zeal to make a good appearance. <laughs> and all this at the same time that she is molding the new figures around you into wonderful beauties which, of course, is only making your plight worse. <laughs> when you're very young, your ability to smell is so intense as to be nearly overwhelming. But by the time you're in your 80s, not only has your ability to smell declined significantly, but you yourself, you yourself no longer even have a distinctive odor. You can stop using deodorants. <laughs> because you're vanishing. As we get older, the British poet Henry Reed helpfully observed, we do not get any younger. 
So this is, this is, uh, this is it. <laughs> and yet, we will do everything we can to deny this. Everything we can to try to keep this particular arising and passing, this particular birth and death from happening. This is um, another one from uh, a, a bit, something that was in the newspaper called the obituary pages. This is, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I'm trying to get a point across, <laughs> but with good humor. <laughs> the obituary pages tell us of the news that we are dying away while the birth announcements in fine print at the side of the same page infor informs us of our replacements. <laughs> but we get no grasp from this of the enormity of the scale. There are about seven billion of us on Earth, and all seven billion will be dead on schedule. The vast mortality involving something over eight million each year takes place in relatively secrecy. Less than a half a century from now, our replacements will have more than doubled in numbers. It's hard to see how we can continue to keep the secret with such multitudes doing the dying. We will have to give up the notion that death is a catastrophe or detestable or unavoidable or even strange. We will need to learn more about the cycling of life in the rest of the system and more about our connection to the whole process. And so in our meditation, when we see the arising and the passing, the birth and the death of each moment, this is a revelation into the nature of reality, of what is actually true. And when we aren't resisting, when we're not struggling or, or interfering with that expression of reality, then we recognize that that is who I am. I am that. I am the arising of these conditions and the passing of these conditions moment to moment to moment. And is there really anything else happening? And what's so wonderful is that these conditions have an exquisiteness to them. Yes, they also have an incredible, painful, difficult side to these conditions, but they also have an exquisite beauty in their expression, in their manifestation. And when we are able to rest back into the nature itself, there is the consciousness that knows this. There is the wisdom that understands this. And I am that. You are that not separate from anything, not separate from any of the nature. Nature itself, this reality that arises and passes, and yet there's the 
knowing of that, the consciousness, the space, the spacious field in which this all seems to be occurring, moment to moment. This is from Suzuki Roshi, from his book Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. He says, when we realize the everlasting truth of everything changes and find our composure in it, we find ourselves in nirvana. When we realize the everlasting truth, and each word is really important, the everlasting truth, that means goes on and on and on. The everlasting truth of everything changes and find our composure in it. We find ourselves in nirvana. It's nothing other than this. We think nirvana is something so esoteric, something so mystical, something so unattainable, and yet it is simply this. It's the finding of the composure the resting, the relaxation. We might say the relaxation into the flow, into the fluidity of the conditions. We become the flow, not separate from the flow. We are the flow. And that flow is dynamic. That flow is vibrant, that has a vitality. We, we would call it the life force, the force, the, the force of life or the source of life that is not separate from me or you or anything. It is the nature. So sometimes when we say, well, I'm nothing, if I'm just a, you know, all I am is a construct, you know, then I'm nothing but, but being nothing. We are this vitality. We are this dynamism. We are this expression of creation in our own uniqueness, in our diversity, in our own unique expression. This famous quote, this wonderful quote from Kalu Rinpoche, who uh, was one of the great Tibetan masters uh, who's, who's now died, passed on. Kalu Rinpoche said, We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you understand this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Being nothing, you are everything. That is all. And you have to be nothing because if you're something, then you're confined and fixed and solid, and then how can you be everything? because then you're, you're, you're limited. But when you're not confined, and then we say, well, that's nothing. When you're not confined, then you're this space, the boundlessness that can, is big enough for 
everything to express itself. This creative potential that we are. Nisargadatta says, when you know beyond all doubting that the same life flows through all that is and you are that life, you will love all naturally and spontaneously. When you realize the depth and fullness of your love for yourself, you know that every living being and the entire universe are included in your affection. But when you look at anything as separate from you, you cannot love it, for you are afraid of it. Alienation causes fear, and fear deepens alienation. It is a vicious cycle. Only self-realization can break it. Go for it resolutely. Self-realization. Realizing that you're everything. Not fixed, not confined, not limited, not small. That's just a thought, just a belief, just a construction, just an idea. And as we begin to see through that, things start to break apart and open up. then we start to know what's real, what's true. I think I'll end there. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.